Welcome to the Flick Club. I'm Karri. Studied media. He's Henrik. Studies art. Welcome to the show. <laughs> yup, once again here. Uh, <laughs> despite the fact that I'm, I myself, I'm a bit under, under the weather at the moment. Like ha- having the mother of all hangovers, but that that's how you ac- actually recognize a professional. It's not the quality of the product that you push out, but the fact that you push out the product despite all, all the agonizing pain you are going through yourself. Yeah, whatever mayhem comes across us, we'll be here for you. You can count <laughs> yeah. on it in, in bad yeah. or good. It, 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 yeah, you can, you can count on, on that one. Count on it, gin tonic. But speaking of agonizing pain and uh, and horrible <clears throat> agony, yeah, today's film, come and see. It is Smotri. Yep, or or kill Hitler as it was originally known before they had they were forced to change the name, unfortunately. <laughs> but but the, yeah, w- w- once again, horrible violence, war crimes. And human suffering to keep up with, with the theme of this podcast, which is that every single time that the Christmas times is times are around us, we release an episode which is horrible war crimes and human suffering. Yeah, you beat it to me here. This is the kind of film podcast where we where we do come and see as a Christmas movie. <laughs> yep. Now, la- last Christmas was Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. <laughs> and t- 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 this year it's come and see, and we, we all only have to guess, will it be Serbian film next Christmas? <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, don't give me any ideas. <laughs> so, what is this podcast, Henrik? I, I, I guess this is a failing attempt to find meaning in our lives. Or, or then that was the other thing that I'm currently doing, and and this is the deep analyzing film podcast where we look a look a different film from a different country each week and go into harrowing depths to analyze it so that the episodes themselves last longer than the actual film. Yeah. And yeah, and usually we get some some really <laughs> encouraging listener feedback about that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is for those people who are willing to keep the earpods in their ears for, I don't know, countless hours and, and actually enjoy the in-depth and the endlessness of our discussions. Enjoy the horrible massacre of English language which, which occurs weekly basis. Also, shifting also. a little bit from British uh, pronunciation to, to American pronunciation to Finnish accent, of course, and... Yep. We do our best. But hey, this podcast, its structure is as follows. We start off with some kind of a background discussion about films, and then we move on to the scene-by-scene, which makes the flesh and bones of our show, where we analyze everything we can possibly find to analyze about the film. And then we have this section of reflection, the quickies, as we call them, where we explain by means of simple questions what was our favorite this or favorite that so that's the structure quickie is being kind of, kind of a loose term to use here because usually the quickies also take like like half an hour yeah you also call them by some other name it something like slow is <laughs> yeah but so why did we watch this film indeed I figured it's a good way to lift up the Christmas spirit at home. No better way to set up your uh, spruce baubles than watching it is Motri. Well, the, the, this essentially this is a film about family, 
and family ties. Right. Well, there is that. Yep. And what what is Christmas if not a celebration of family <laughs> and free presents, which are also in a way <clears throat> is 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 in the film in the very first acts where where the kid ducks up a rifle from the sand dunes. And you you can see that as a present if you want. Uh, you can also see this as a hangover medicine for Henrik. <laughs> I heard there there were some certain moments across the sea. I I I really don't know what I may have said during during last night, but I apologize everything. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> all good. It it, it it all started with a, with just a casual friendly game of uh, alias and. Then things somehow escalated all the time for the fir- for the wor- worst direction, and th- this is the horrible results. So the life goes. But what's your history with the film, Henrik? Any- anything to talk about? Actually, I have never seen this one or the other films of the director, for that matter. Mm, this is the only film that I have seen from the director. Yep, and also as as I came to understand when doing the research for the film, this is the director's last movie. That's right. It's understood that he lost his interest in filmmaking after this film. He said that yeah. he said in an interview that he has basically done everything that he wants to do with the format of film, and uh, I can see how those feelings can be such after making this film. Yeah. Uh, then on on that same note, on that same note, I I also saw the same same. Most likely, I saw the same interview as you did, and I'm kind of a hesitant on on how much I actually will buy the director's words on on the subject matter. Did did he really end his career after come and see because the experience was so so hard on him and he felt that now he has done everything he wants and everything he can do with with the art form or was it at least partly because of political reasons because as I came to understand his previous film Agony had actually landed him in in some political blacklists when it came to film directors and and landed him in in fair amount of trouble when it came to actually having the rights and having the government and the officials to actually let letting you make your films, because I I I heard that Comancy also came under a, under a lot of scrutiny from the government officials and like the actual making of the film had to be postponed for something like seven years because. Because the officials made it so hard to start start shooting the film when he originally wanted to start it, yeah, and I... that also would be some kind of a payback for for the film agony. That was a little bit unclear to me after I finished reading and watching. Was that seven or eight year break because the Soviets wanted to time this film to be released during the 40th anniversary of the so-called Soviet victory? in the Second World War, or was it because they wanted to do some changes or they didn't accept the project from the get-go? That is unclear to me. Yeah, I also, I, I can't say that I'm any kind of an authority on the matter, because I 
kind of, I got the picture that there are conflicting stories on how it happened and why it happened. Yeah, wasn't like, it like though that uh, because this wasn't really that kind of a ultra patriotic film that maybe this Soviet Duma was looking for. So it's more of a depiction of the harrows and the, the horrors of war. So maybe they wanted to do some changes and they weren't first forthcoming. It it could be. It could be, of course, also that. Then again, w- once again, I- if we are to take the director's words on what what happened before the shooting started, in that case, like mentioned, the original title for the film or the shooting script title for the film was "Kill Hitler," and as as evident from from the actual title, come and see. Well, that they at least that. They most certainly did change if the if the director's version of the events holds true. You you really can't verify this one. Uh, this this is something that uh, the director tells you something, and th- then you get the government official side, which is once again some uh, a contradicting account, and you are kind of left in the middle trying to piece uh, piece together which source you believe in what instance. Unfortunately, you can't even ask the director anymore any further follow-up questions because Elm Klimov did die in 2003. Klimov, of course, himself was a little boy during the war and uh, he co-wrote the screenplay with Ales Adamovich. They were both in the Belarusian partisans as teenagers fighting in some capacity. And uh, this is considered to be one of the greatest war films of all time. Also something to drop about Klimov, he was married to film director Larisa Shepitko, who tragically died in a car accident while on location scouting for her film. And Klimov then took matters into his hands and completed her last film project. So uh, she, uh, he has been through quite a lot of things. Yeah, and, and, and the film itself is... I... I I've come to believe at least partly based on the book I am from the Fiery Village, which also I haven't been able to read for for today's episode, so I I don't know what the differences are. But from Klimov's interview, I I got the picture that that the book I am from the Fiery Village it is it's once again very kind of a documentaristic, very real account of the real-life atrocities that the author of the book witnessed himself. Unfortunately, I haven't read it myself either, but there is a great deal of reading going on here lately on on my part, but couldn't quite get to this one this time. But um, we are the kind of podcast that tries to be kind of completionist with the data that we go through. So on occasions, we also read the related book if we just managed to. I watched this film in 2012, saw it around the time I <laughs> broke up actually, and it was also in December back in 2012, so g- good times. It was... Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you really managed to nail it, like, the, the timing couldn't have been more perfect. Yeah, I just looked at, looked at the, like the, uh, uh, no I can't say that on air, let me rephrase what, what the <laughs> Did, did did the box cover say like the most disgusting depiction of war ever? And you were you went immediately like, yeah, this is the breakup film for me. 
<laughs> I, I, lo <laughs> I looked at the Amazon delivery notes and the, and the date that was imprinted on it. And it was somewhere around December 2012. And during that time I had this Russian film bug. And it's when I watched The Prisoner of the Mountains as well. And Brat or Brother 1 and 2 and come and see. So about this background of the film, what is happening in this film? Do you want to provide some kind of a synopsis or... Um, you, you mean the film itself or the historical account behind the film? Or the his, historical events? Are we going to go, go through the Second World War one, once again? If you have simply, anything on it. Well, I would say that nothing that we haven't already <laughs> stated out in the podcast. Yeah, you can restate it if, if you have something because... And this is kind of basically... A perfect continuation from that theme that we had in Unknown Soldier. This is basically like Unknown Soldier to the real Heroes of War edition. Kinda, yeah, now, now that you mentioned it. Yeah, that's a quite, quite the coincidence, actually. To, to have two films about this essentially kinda sorta the same conflict. Right back to back. Yeah, we are returning to Operation Barbarossa which is also related to The Unknown Soldier, where the Finns were fighting against, against the Russians, the Winter War and the Continuation War. And there was this siege of Leningrad from the north. The Finns had blocked the, the, the ways to go to the north from Leningrad and also in south, the Nazi Germany was surrounding Leningrad. So there was no escape, even by via sea, because Finns and... Uh, Germans had blocked the waterways. Yeah, and today we are watching a film about, like you mentioned, the same operation, but this time from the Soviet perspective, more more closely about the Nazis' occupation of Belarus. Yeah, we couldn't find a Russian guest, so instead we're going to give it a different outlook on the whole situation by looking at this film, I guess. <laughs> and it's a complete accident. It is, it is. A guest was actually, originally we were going to have a guest for this episode to just kind of smooth over, over the fact that this is, once again, this is two Finns looking at, uh, looking at a Russian film about the occupation of Belarus. But, but unfortunately our guest couldn't make it. Because of that, well, both Unknown Soldier and, and now come and see from, from our side, from, from the Flick Labs perspective, they are, both episodes are going to have extremely Finnish-centric looking point. Yeah, that's very much true. Film was entirely filmed in Belarus for added effect. The original Belarusian title of the film is from the chapter 6 of the Apocalypse of John. And uh, there are some verses that might draw your interest that you can find on the internet as well. So there are several verses that repeat the come and see in the Bible. And that's the source of the title after the kill Hitler. Also, interestingly, this film was shot in chronological order over a period of nine months, through which the main actor Alexei Kravchenko, he went through, quote, the most debilitating fatigue and hunger and kept an extremely conservative diet and returned to school very thin and gray-haired. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, th th this unfortunately was the young boy's first film appearance. 
No, no previous previous expertise uh, or pre- previous history working on cinema. What, once again, you know, the, this this goes into the director's version of of how, how things went. But but the director has stated that the shoot was pretty tough on the young lad to uh, actually to the point where they had to develop some kind of a hypnosis method, which they then used on the kid to kind of a make sure that his that his mentality does not break or he doesn't lose mu- lose his mind because because the the feelings that he has to go through as an actor when playing the part are so extreme and be- because the shoot itself was so such of an extreme experience so essentially what you are looking at here in today is oh, two and two and a half hours of a hypnotized kid and it is very effective for the most part. It's very effective and uh, the performances are very convincing. Probably what contributes to that is indeed all of this, the, the reality that they were looking for by making many things real. For example, they were using live ammunition. <laughs> As one does, when, when especially when dealing with child actors. Uh, as one does, and also puts the guy basically on the shooting range where the bullets were flying like a few <laughs> inches away from his head. Yeah, apparently also using live explosives and, and uh, also uh, using a cow for which they did not have animal handler and the cow was not in any way trained. Which, once again, if, if taking the director's words, almost ended up crushing the kid. Or some or someone else from the production crew. Jesus, what, do you know if they actually killed the cow? They probably did. I was not able to actually confirm <clears throat> did they kill the cow. But hearing how extreme the shoot has been, I wouldn't be completely surprised if they did precisely that. Yeah. At least it it looks very realistic once the cow dies in in the end of the film. Or the last during the last third of the film, but of of course, never been confirmed at least to my knowledge. So you can always try to convince yourself and take take shelter on the idea that they they didn't actually kill the cow. Henrik, would it be seen by scene? I actually don't see any reason why not. Because god, god damn it, if I'm not in the mood for some horrible violence. <laughs> Yeah, so basically this is a Belarusian Russian production, so not fully a Russian film. And we start off with a scene where this is this old man who is looking for the kid, who is up to no good. This might be the father or just some guy who is kind of enraged about this kid playing games. I, I took it that this indeed is, is the boy's father. Even though the character is never properly established. Yeah, there is this uh, second boy apart from our main character who is using this very vulgar language and playing war games in the sand fields. And almost immediately we are introduced to this first person camera, which I find kind of interesting. And actually it makes you feel very uncomfortable, as one does feel uncomfortable when a person is in the middle of middle of the screen looking straight at you and it's not but not positioned on like a more aesthetic position like a little bit to the right or the left side of the screen this is direct staring 
which occurs many times in the duration of the film. And it actually took me quite a long time to act, to finally understand what the director most likely was was doing with with all, all these extreme close-up shots and and the characters staring directly at the camera because there is also there is there there is the constant for, fourth wall breaking element in in those shots where when character looks straight at you that's a typical fourth wall breaking moment and I was. I was really scratching my head, driving me nuts, trying to figure out why does the film constantly break the fourth wall? Like what the film is trying to trying to say to the audience at this moment. I felt that it's trying to put the viewer in the position of the main character, kind of address the, address the crowd to make it more personal. And maybe unlike you, I didn't feel... This fourth wall element, it didn't even come to my mind, actually. Speaking of maybe for the merit of the film that it actually works in this way. Okay, because I I was constantly paying attention and trying to figure out that. Why? Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Mostly because usually this is used when either a joke, some kind of a meta-level joke, is trying to be presented to the audience members, or when the character within the film is trying to convey some inner thoughts, inner monologue, or show his show his two faced nature, or something like that. When the character is trying to trying to give the audience information that the character can't give w- within the film's universe, and this movie actually doesn't use use the direct staring that. The, the fourth wall break for that effect. This actually does very deliberately does you use the inner voice narration and the inner voice as as an audio method to actually give the audiences what the character is thinking. So in, in that sense, the the fourth wall breaks themselves even wouldn't be necessary to use for 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 to achieve this effect. Perhaps. For sure, it makes me feel uncomfortable. For example, when this kid is now playing dog and is approaching the camera with those eyes. I, I, I kind of just found that actually hilarious, if, if we are completely honest be <laughs> honest here. If you ask me, I, I would say that when it comes to the staring at the camera, it's more to do with the sound image composition thing that the film starts to do more prominently in the later parts on the second half of the movie. Especially once we get to the more harder scenes and and the scenes of atrocities within the film. And I I would say that that is the main point that most likely the camera work and the audio work are trying to achieve in combination. Because this is a movie that does some really clever tricks with, with, with its cinematography and with its audio design. Sure does. I felt it might just be a little bit ahead of its time. For example, when we get to the forest and there is this aerial bombing and you get this piercing sound indicating that somebody has lost temporarily their, their hearing. And who knows, maybe it has been used before this film, but there's a lot of these tricks. Yeah, I I wouldn't count too much for much to the air bombing scene. In the end, that's quite typical, at least by now in in movies to use that to use the the effect to showcase the tinnitus and and the kind of a deafening effect 
But I, I would say that later on, for example, in the box scene, when, when they are meeting the villagers in the swamp, like I, I would say that is, at least for me, that was the moment where I finally started to piece together what the film was was doing with it, with its audio design and the way how it presents sound. Hmm. We finished this first scene in the sand with the Fockewolf 189, this uh, three-seat plane from Germans, first used in 1940. And it appears several times during the film. Kept wondering if they actually used it flying in the air, but it wouldn't surprise me at all because they want to get to the high realisticity of the film. At this moment, I was kind of expecting that they would start shooting at the boys. This doesn't happen just quite yet. So Fliora has now gotten from the sand the SVT-40 Soviet semi-automatic rifle, which he wants to use in order to join the Soviet partisan groups to join the war. And so it indeed happens that there is this scene where we go to Fliora's home and uh, the, the partisans come to collect him and actually use quite considerable and what seems to be completely unnecessary force to take him to the troops because he is completely willing to join them as the naive kind of a teenager schoolboy with a huge smile on his face. Yeah, in, in this moment when when the partisan troops come to c- c- comes to his ho- home, it's not exactly clear has Fliora himself actually been the one who has who has let the partisans know that he can he is willing and capable of joining the fight. That's the implication that I got from the film because he comes there and has already just told his mother and then they Im- immediately enter, but. Of course, it could be just made for, make the storytelling smoother. It could be. But on top of that, Fleur also has already packed his his suitcase, which he takes with him. And when when the soldiers enter the home, they almost immediately ask Fleur, where is his gun? Which kind of also implicates that they would already be aware that Fleur has has a rifle. And because of this, he is uh, capable of joining joining the partisan forces. Because the whole whole idea in the previous scene, when they were in the sand beach look, looking for the rifles and ammunition, was that the Flora can join join the partisan forces before he has his own rifle. And they really act like pigs inside the house, which kind of is interesting taking into consideration that this is done during the Soviet times and the, the partisan Soviet troops were supported by, by Soviet Russia itself. So this is not giving a very favorable image of any uh, of, of them. Well, it, 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 it's, it's, it's still more fa- uh, favorable than, than what we are shown from the Nazi side sure. of events later on in the film. Uh, the partisan troops... They still, well, well, at least they are still, well, at least a bit res- respectful towards the house which they enter. And they they do some funny gags for the little kids. Yeah, and then they but, steal the chicken or whatever this animal yeah, was. Yup, like immediately after they leave the, leave the house, 
right after they step out of the front door, the attitude changes like immediately. Before that, they have been just talking a bit warmly to Fiora, giving him. They they have been giving him orders like, "Where's your rifle? Where's your suitcase?" And they tell him that we are now leaving, but. That, that's still simply just giving verbal commands. Immediately after they actually step out, out of the house, they immediately push Flora over, making him fall, and they steal the chicken, or, or whatever the farm animal is. And there's kind of a, like, it's, it's almost like an on-off switch. You are indoors, you are outdoors, and the attitudes and behavior changes immediately. And the blasting of Flora to the door so that he hits his head so badly that it starts bleeding and that seemed to be completely unnecessary because he was going to go forward anyway you will maybe this is kind of trying to show the harshness of the of the military environment right off the gate but kind of like why there was no any conflict until until they started it themselves out of thin air yep but it, it of course might also be that they were already prepared that the mother will start the conflict immediately after they after they leave the house, and that would be kind of kind of a, this unworded point of no return. Like be, be, before that, Flora still belongs to the house, belo- belongs to his uh, to his mother, belongs to his family, and immediately on on the act of of leaving, the act of exit. That 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 would be the point for for the mother where Fleora changes his belonging to the belonging to the partisan troops, and be, because of that, that would be the point when mother starts to starts to cry and push back the soldiers and throw up the opposition for the so- partisans to take Fleora. And it in in what reading you could say that that was kind of the moment that the partisan so- soldiers were waiting and expecting and they were kind of mentally preparing themselves inside the house for that moment so that's why they act so completely different within the house because Mm. because the opposition from the mother is still not happening yeah that's a good point so they throw fliora out of the out of the house and put him on the horse carriage the mother follows the horse carriage there is uh, i i suppose uh, some german guy on the horse carriage as well because he doesn't speak Belarusian or Russian which I found interesting and uh, uh, Fliora is also calling the town mayor was it an idiot yeah town mayor this is uh, followed by the camp scene they have the photo shoot which they are preparing like forever always some new guy coming to the image also a cow uh, on the cow that they have written we'd rather eat you than let the enemy get you I noticed that, that they are kind of well off or are depicted being very well off on this camp, for example. It seems to be this this cow now that they are putting into pieces and they are eating very well. A lot of meat for everybody. I wonder how realistic depiction this is of the of the situation, but that's how it's being depicted. And Fliora is on a, on a shift guarding the camp and this squad leader comes there. And the squad leader comes to talk to Fiora to give some instructions. 
Yeah, ba- basically telling him that Fleora is, is failing in his guard duty because he didn't immediately shoot at the leader when the leader did not give the correct pass for award for Fleora. Same time we are introduced to Glasha, who is the nurse at the camp. Who Fleora also doesn't shoot for some oh, godless reason. Yeah, maybe he figured out that this is not a threatening situation because... Okay, it could be because we, then, we famously... Then again, <laughs> then again, his commanding officer has just said Fleora, like point by point, that, that you should immediately if someone does not give you the password when asked. Yeah, and then again, I found it interesting that he's put on put on to double duty because of his mistake, right? But then immediately the 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 other soldiers come to the scene and free him from his duties. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's almost like the partisan forces doesn't know exactly how to create military discipline and how how the military discipline should work in a situation like this. Followed by the pot cleaning, I found this kind of. Uh, Iconic. Haven't seen anything like this before, put on film, really. But yeah, also the pots have to be cleaned, and he is hard at work put into all of these shit works throughout his stay at the camp, like cleaning this pot, to which I believe they were, will put the cow. Yeah, that or then they are actually trying to boil Fili- Fiora. <laughs> Because the fire underneath the pot has actually been lit. So, so the water is boiling and, and with the water also possibly Fleora is, being, uh, is boiling. Which could also, also explain how the partisan troops are so well fed. Partisan commander Kossach gives his orders. They are continuing on their march. But uh, they go through the equipment situation and they held situation of the group and Kossach orders that Fiora must, must give his boots to this older gentleman who is having a poor condition shoes or boots. At the same time Fiora is ordered to stay at the camp and take care of the camp which he ultimately doesn't. He seems to wander into the wilderness ever deeper. And then some, at some point he once again meets with Glasha in the forest. And they bond, and they slowly start to lose their mind, or seem to be extremely bored. And we have this return to this first-person camera work. Fleora is crying about the condition of the shoes that he got, but soon this sorrow turns into confused laughter. So they're descending into madness, little by little. The bombing starts, after which they start to descend further into madness, it starts raining and they are dancing in the forest, completely wet. And this, the, the air bombing scene and, and the following lost in the wood scene is... That's uh, actually, that, that is the first part in the movie where the, the audio mixing uh, or, or the audio design really starts to show up. And when you f- first start to pick up the clues on what actually is going on with the audios... Because when when you look at look at what what's happening on the screen, like like the the situation that is presented to you, and then listen to the audio that you are being given, you pick up very quickly that the audio and the images doesn't completely match. Like for example, when when Klasha is dancing on the rain, there there is this very happy 
kind of, kind of a childlike circus music playing on the background while there is, in fact is no any kind of a source of of music or source of noise present in in the woods themselves. And the, later on, the film actually makes a very conscious effort to actually showcase you audio and, and the noise sources whenever they are being presented within the film. So now the dancing scene kind of a start, starts to make you ask the question, where exactly is that music coming from? And why is that music here? Already that's something that is coming from their head and their imagination as they are. Very bored, and uh, more than bored, I think they are traumatized already by the situation. Yeah, and that that was also my interpretation of of the audio and the, and the sound of the music of the So field. trying to divert your attention to something more pleasant in this environment. In in this scene, yeah, and I I, I would say that the audio design is more more than anything. The audio design is is depicting you Theora's mental state throughout the film and when they go to this stork's nest to sleep it already seems that Glasha is very sick I was expecting this to go that way that she would get so sick that she would not be able to walk and then he would have to carry her but she's uh, able to get better it seems well at least you know not getting a fever which is a good thing because Flora most certainly couldn't have been able to carry Glasha anywhere. Right. There's a lot of shots at this stork. Did you find any additional meaning to it? It might carry something that I'm not picking up here. Not, not on the stork itself, no. And it looks like Fliora next day has hurt his leg, so he's using these sticks to keep walking, which he puts behind almost immediately when they return to the village where it seems it's uh, eerily silent. And they return. Fliora goes back to his home and finds nothing there, just food left uneaten on the table, surrounded by flies, and even goes to lengths to try to eat something from the pot, which is apparently still warm, which I might doubt. They try it, and Glasha spits it, spits it out immediately. So there are these moments of pause in these characters where they are processing the information, and there is this denial going through their heads all the time until the very moment when they come to the swamp camp let's say and Fliora is informed that the whole family of his was shot but so Fliora gets the idea that he might know where they are and that there is this brutal imagery Glasha sees the bodies behind the shack one of the most memorable shots of this film to be sure but does, Glasha doesn't tell anything about what she saw to Fliora to not upset him further. Fliora deduces that they have gone to the island to know what kind of a master plan is to go through the mock or the swamp. They could have just taken a different tour, I think. But Fliora is desperate. The things you do for filmmaking. Now once they get to the other side, Glasha tells about the bodies that she saw. And Fliora takes it well. Very well indeed. And they come across Arube, who leads Fliora and Glasha to the camp of sorts. Looks like he's looking for people, survivors. This is a serious makeshift camp. It seems that there is no shelter really of any kind. They are just populating this swampy area. 
and this guy who is half burned to, burned to death gives the harrowing details to Fliorat how people were burned and shot. Yeah, the, again, at this point, it's half burned Carcass who tells him that he shouldn't have gone digging for the rifle, which uh, which is also a sentiment that has quite the effect on young Fliora, as Fliora feels that the horrors that have happened are now partly his fault. Like, they are some kind of a karmatic payback for the fact that he went and, and found the rifle. One thing that is sure, now Fliora is blaming himself for what happened to the whole family. His sisters and uh, mother. And you kind of get get the highlighted notion with that once again through the, the audio design of the film. Because when, when Fliora is, is approaching the camp, you start to hear this noise, this wailing and all, all this crying that's, that's really loud. Like there, there is this, this really strong noise that hits your ears. But once Fliora meets the half-burned man, he, he taught them specifically not to dig for the rifle. On that moment, all, all, all that crying and wailing, once again, it quiets down. So that, that the dialogue from the burned man and the condemnation of, of digging up the rifle, it's, it, that, that is here to, very clearly. During this moment, in a shock, Flora starts backing away from the man. And immediately the crying and the wailing, once again, it kind of hits your ears. It becomes almost this almost deafening noise that surrounds you. And then Fliora goes and in desperate act of desperation stuck his head in into the bog water, into the swamp water. And that even though that act alone should actually cut off the sound or at least mute it into a great detail since his ears are now covered with, with swamp water, you still actually hear it perfectly clear. It's still as deafening as, as it was just a moment ago. My take kind of was that this is, once again, this is the audio design showing you kind of the traumatizing effect and, and Fliora's mind kind of slowly breaking apart. Like how, how he starts to hear things that that kind of come more from his subconscious and more from his more from inside of him than the actual outside sound sources and he indeed does stare into emptiness at the camp and pretty much for the rest of the film whenever he can also i found it really powerful when he's sitting down at the camp and they have built this kind of a doll out of the remains of some ss officer and Kind of instinctively, as a reflex, he starts kind of spitting from a distance at the doll officer. So now they are leaving the camp in an effort to find food. And they are very determined to irritate the Nazis. And they put up the doll in the middle of an intersection of this gravel road. Not just that, they also armed the doll with a bomb. So it's basically, it's, it becomes a trap for the Nazis. And some leaflets are being dropped by the Nazis. Giving you also the image of the propaganda war that was also going on during the occupation. Yeah, smash a brick in their ugly mugs. That's it. The effort to deliver this message. Well, basically, more than that, it's it's calling, calling upon inflicting violence against the Jewish population in Belarus. 
So it's but once again it's encouraging the encouraging the anti-Semitic sentiments within the Belarusian people while you are at the same time occupying their territory. And just a meaningless notion that this actor who picks up the leaflet he looks very much like Ron Perlman. <laughs> well, a, a, at least Ron Perlman in Enemy at the Gates. Uh huh. When it comes to lookalikes, there's more. For example, if you check out your WhatsApp, there is the uh, the picture of Alexei Kravchenko nowadays, who plays Floria in this film, and somebody that you might know as well. Well, that that is somewhat <laughs> of a striking resemblance, I must admit. <laughs> and if I may say so, Eppu Normali looks a little bit like Henrik here. <laughs> Oh, bah, 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 bah. I, I, don't, I don't know what, what I've done to earn such insults. Really? <laughs> Wasn't he on the <laughs> list of the sexiest men on earth? Or in Finland, anyway. <clears throat> what, me? Or, or abnormal? Both, both. <laughs> yeah, they walk through a minefield. Luckily, they get with the very, very low casualties, so they're expecting the bombardment from the planes, but it's actually the mines that they step to. So kind of moments like these and the case of father makes it a little bit convoluted what is actually happening and find the leg of one of their partners. Now they get to the new village and this cow owner and they do their best to steal the cow and start milking her. Now the Germans start to shoot from a distance and it seems that Fliora's body once again is now nothing more than a body lying on the ground. The cow survives for now seems to be kind of undeterred by the shootout, but then finally dies as well. When the fire starts rolling again, it's very realistic. seems that they actually shot the cow. Especially with that extreme close-up on the cow's eye, which they give, the, give to you. Oh, true. And Fliora kind of, kind of takes shelter from the cow and is sleeping next to the cow to make life a little bit more comfortable, then finds a horse tries to steal the horse, but then the owner owner of it suddenly appears. But once the Germans start to flock out of the truck, the owner still allows the Fli- Fliora to escape and take shelter because he's only a kid. I have to wonder how many Germans you can fit inside one truck. Seems to go on forever, this flow of people. At this point they basically reach yet again another town where many of the people are flocked into a few houses, taking shelter, and the SS officers are there to eat all of their food, destroy their windows, etc. But that's only the beginning, because now we're getting to the factually, unfortunately, quite accurate depiction of the fact how the Germans destroyed over 600 villages in the area. And as the director noted, everybody knows about the terror of Katyn, but also what was done to the Russians by the Nazi Germany is is quite something and maybe less written of. People are forcibly pushed into shacks. Almost one SS officer is also left there, but gets out at the last moment. Somehow Fliora is the only one, it seems, who is able to get out of this shack when they start burning it. Just comes out of one of those windows. And it's not quite kind of explained how he managed to pull it off. Well, the Nazis are allowing people to escape through the windows as long as they don't bring the children. 
And I guess in the, this situation, the children is something like below 13, below 10. Uh, what do you think about the final makeup of Fliora? Did it bother you? Uh, it seems to be kind of, kind of maybe a little bit overdone, or it could also look like that perhaps with that amount of dirt. I always thought it was kind of a makeup overdone. To me, it was an aesthetic choice, which was kind of a showcasing you the the kind of a mental breakdown of Fliora. Fliora, through the makeup, Fliora starts to look more and more like an old man. Yeah. Towards the end of the film, more precisely, he starts to look more and more like the like the man from the very first shot of the film, who tells the kids not to go looking and digging up the rifles. Yeah, that's a good point. The Germans have now burned down one of these shacks or several of them, shot at the prisoners inside, and also thrown some grenades, I believe. Done basically everything they could to make it as agonizing as possible. And off they go, I believe, to the next village. But not before they take a photo shoot with Fliora. And the famous image where the officer is keeping the handgun on Fliora's head for the photo opportunity. But then at least has like a small quantum of heart to spare the boy. So Fliora tries to get out of the scenery. Yep. And this is kind of a, like you said, this is kind of one of those poster shots of the film, the, the close-up on yep. on Flora's face, which really kind of does showcase you Alexei Kravchenko's acting abilities already at such of a young age. Even though, even though, <laughs> if, yep. if the stories, stories about the production of the film hold true, it may also be the case that it's not so much of Alexei's acting as it's Alexei actually being really in real life really being afraid that the director has put on put on a live round inside the gun yeah it seems very much so that he was put through a hell when making this film just to get the proper effect well if if that once again if, if going by the director's word here yeah he most certainly was the director tells uh, the did in in the inter- interviews. The director did give, tell the story where where Alexei was put in into a lo- uh, into a dark what was it barn or or some other farm building like a like a dark shack. He had to be there for a moment for for the film and well well for the longest time nothing came of it. But years later. Alexei told the director that he almost went insane while while being inside the shack. Oh no! Yeah. See, this is why you hypnotize your your child actors when when you are making movies. Yeah, Kl- Klimov was though nice enough to try his best to keep the boy's boy sane and return him safely to his mother after the filming had completed. Yeah, so. yeah, but 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 only after uh, only after shooting at the kid with live ammunition. So <laughs> <laughs> this is no Hollywood, boys and girls. <laughs> this is this is filmmaking. Like this is this is not your cozy in studio Marvel movie. This is this is real life filmmaking where you shoot at your actors. 
Fliora plays dead for a moment and then goes to witness the, the execution of the, the SS. Some of them are pleading for their life, but they are already pouring gasoline. Actually, don't set them aflame at that moment, but they just shoot them and then probably burn them afterwards. Yeah, uh, another once again interesting film ma- uh, filmmaking technique that is being used here during a, uh, at this this point is when Fliora once again meets with a Klasha looking like lady from the village, the other person who was able to escape the church before the yeah. uh, before the Nazis burn burn it and who now has been gang raped by the Nazis. And what what is interesting here is once again those straight close-ups on on the actors' faces, which look straight at you, almost once again giving you that fourth wall breaking moment. And from those close-ups, you actually get the idea that that Flora and the lady are looking at each other, like standing right next next to each other and look, looking at each other's faces. But then Flora turns. And the image re- reverts into uh, into a beat backwards, and and you get that wide shot of of Leora leaving. And in that shot, actually, you finally realize that they haven't been standing next to each other uh, and looking at each other. Leora has actually been sta- standing on on the le- uh, on the left side side of the lady, which means that from his vantage point, he only could have seen like like the silhouette of the lady or seen her left side maybe in a small angle like like see see one eye but but not get a direct look at at the lady's face so it's once again it's it's basically it's it's you you using close-ups and then using wide shots to actually showcase to you that that the perception you are given from Fliora's viewpoint of of what he sees, what you see through Fliora, it's not actually the actual reality. And the film does this interestingly in couple of places where you are being mo- mostly you are being shown events very closely to Fliora, and then you are be and then the camera pulls a bit backwards, showing you the larger scale, showing you the wider area. And in those moments, you actually notice that. What you have been shown from the character's perspective, it's not actually in line with the reality of those scenes. Once again, giving giving kind of a weight to the notion that not not only through sound work, but also through camera work and cinematography, the film is is trying to depict the experience of, of per person's mind going through a trauma and becoming traumatized. Yeah, and also moving from the close-up to the, the wide shot. It's kind of just, almost feels like it's kind of sort of ca- casually carrying on from one extremely harrowing moment to the next, just like that. It is, it, it, it is. It's it's almost like Fiora himself is starting to become so jaded or his mind is starting to become so traumatized that as a person, Fleora is becoming jaded to the horrors of war and and the events that he goes through. Like he no longer really anymore stops in that moment. Like he doesn't freeze. He, he very quickly, very casually just continues 
turns around, turns his, his back to something that he has just previously seen, and then continue walking, walking forward. In in this scene, where where that forward is, it's underneath the bridge where they are executing the now captured Nazi soldiers. And Fliora famously now finds in the river the propaganda poster of Hitler. And Fliora, of course, goes a bit crazy here and starts shooting multiple times at the portrait. We see a compilation of the Nazi Germany moments, but played in reverse, as like we're undoing what was done. And of course, you can't ever undo these moments, and that's kind of the horrifying part. You want to rewind it, but you just can't. And it it also kind of showcases you how far Fliora has gone already as a person in in the course of the the film because once again how how the how it's cross cut uh, the 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 picture changes between the actual movie images and then then there's recorded documentary images of the of the of the Third Reich. Kind of a rhythm of the scene is that Fleora shoots at the picture and then you are shown glimpses of the reversed Nazi documentaries. And then there is another shot followed by more reverse material from the documentaries. Third shot followed by more. And the timeline of basically Hitler's reign is... Is it's 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 shown to you going backwards. It's it's kind of a starting from the very end of the conflict and going going all the way backwards to him rising into power and even later on him being a child and him being young and the Germany before Hitler and Fliora just keeps on on shooting the image, reversing the, the, the documentary material even f- further and further, until he finally reaches the point where he's, he's kind of seeing Hitler as a child, like a really small child, almost a baby. And that's the final moment where Fleur finally actually stops shooting at the picture, kind of realizing that, that shooting a baby is maybe taking it a tad bit too far. Like he kind of connects with his with his humanity during that moment, but but that act kind kind of a shooting shooting Hitler, killing Hitler, to in a in an attempt to kind of a go backwards in time to reverse the the whole formation of Third Reich and the, the whole Kristallnacht and Hitler rising power. It just you know he keeps on rewinding that and and he keeps on trying to go backwards in time, really kind of almost to the very end moment, like almost to a moment where he all or to a moment where he almost ends up shooting a child, making kind of the case that if if you would wanna rewind back back the time, you would kind of have to kill Hitler before he becomes the beast he did. And th- there it becomes kind of a harder to draw the line. Like, at what age you can still kill Hitler? Can you still, can you kill a Hitler as a baby? Is that still okay to prevent the whole Second World War, the whole Wehrmacht? Or, or sh- should you kind of limit to yourself? 
killing Hitler only as a he's uh, only when he's still a teenager or when he's still an art student or just in the first days when he's starting to re- rise into power but has still not managed to really do it. Yeah, it's very powerful, and for some reason they didn't use an actual correct historical picture of a child Hitler or a baby Hitler in the last picture. Maybe it wasn't available or some other technical reason for it. But yeah, that's that's not actually Hitler. No, it's it's some uncredited baby which they used in the end. I I'm guessing it's because they were not able to find an actual picture of of Hitler at that age. Yeah. I I would guess that that would be that most likely is the reason why they used some other child here to, to kind of work as a standing for for Hitler. Then again, I I don't know if if you even today really can find one because if if you simply put put on Google image search baby Hitler, you you get get the exact same same kid from the film actually. Oh really? Huh. This last running camera that kind of goes through the forest and back to the running troops, it's kind of curious case. It's just I guess giving different perspective of, of the running troops and that's it. Which finally tilts up to the trees and the film ends. And that was come and see. So it was. How's your hangover? <laughs> Well, you know, war crimes and and atrocities always helps helps with with hangover. So, yeah. <laughs> if nothing else, today's generations have gotten really a good hangover remedy from those times. Jump into the quickies. It would it would be favorite scene. Um, for my end, it's it's the final village attack. Yeah, yeah, it's the same for me. The torching of the village shacks near the end. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of a, it is the most roughest moment that this film has. The movie kind of, kind of takes its time to to showcase you the the escalation of violence and the escalation of of the horrors that you are going to witness there. The or, or in the beginning of the film and or during the first half, you really don't see anything that strong. In the end, the air bombing scene that which you get. It's it's not really that horrible in the end. The the following morning is is a bit more horrible, but still pretty sustainable. But after they finally reach the swamp, the the situation starts to escalate very quickly. You are being subjected to more and more horrific scenes in very rapid process after the swamp, and it it all kind of comes down. And reaches its high point in horrificness in in that final village attack. Yeah, it does. The first time viewing this, the the village shacks really kind of did it for me to to a point where I, even though nothing that is shown is really unexpected, it still hits you and raises your hair up when you reach these scenes. Favorite shot would be that burning church. I would say, as, as as the main church of the village goes up in flames. For me, it's the last close-up of Fliora shooting the portrait of Hitler. Or it could as well be when they're holding the gun next to the face of Fliora. For the photograph, favorite quote? The, from my end, this one goes to the partisan leader 
describing the fascists. Their main weapon is fear. They want to make slaves of you. Just box. To crush you down. They're the ones who are going to be scared of us. No mercy to them. Very good. For me it would be, don't tickle me or my fart is going to flatten Europe. Favorite kill? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna take the easy one out, out of here. It's going to be the fascist Nazis who get murdered under the bridge. Yeah, my favorite kill, not sure how much sense it makes, but it would be Adolf Hitler's portrait. Killing a portrait, you are kind of stretching the favorite kill category here. Uh, the whole depiction of kill. This is the easiest way out of this film. <laughs> what would you put on the film's poster? I would put the... When they're taking the photograph with the SS. Most likely that's the exact same image. Which is actually in some posters. Which is in, in some pro posters and all around it's pretty used in the promotional material of the film. Rightly so. Rightly so, for very understandable reasons. What took you out? Uh, I actually never was really out with the film. Yeah, nothing here as well. It could be stated that the characters make a lot of illogical decision-making, traumatized or not. However, it, yeah, it depends how you read the actors, especially specifically Glasha and Floria. I think they make pretty weird choices in, in the forest. But I think it's just that they are under under the pressure and that's it. Not acting logically during the war. They also are inexperienced and, at least in Fiora's case, kids in that moment. Not, not sure how old Klaasha is, is in the film, but Fiora himself is, is something like ma ma max 15. He, he was 15. What put you in? This is gonna be so sound horrible from my end, but... It was actually the escalating violence throughout the film. That it does. Like, like the hard, harder the film got to be, to, to be watched, the more clued in with the film I was. I don't know what that says says about me as a person, but, you know, well, there, there, there's your answer. It's, it's a horrible violence and war crimes. Well, anyone who has listened to this podcast for 70 plus episode should get a picture of what to expect from Henrik. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the harrowing nature of the story and occasionally this quite unique cinematography, like those first person shots mainly and some pull aways and uh, it's very artistic. How would you fix this film, Scissors of Sacrilege? I I am hesitant to actually impose any kind of a fixes for, for the movie. Yeah, same. Works as is. But hey, what do you know? You really know you're watching It Is Motri. When? When that village scene starts to play out and gang-raped ladies start to walk towards you. Hmm. Yeah, you really know you're watching Come and See when you just stare at the screen with your friend in silence and no one says a word. That's what happened. Yeah, the, uh, Come and See, in the end, it's, it's a film that very much... Uh, it, it's a film which effect very much lies in the atrocities that are being shown. Yeah, the kind of cap that captures uh, into its world immediately. Yeah, and, and you basically you can, you can get the wrong image of, of this podcast by listening to the quickies, which are all about 
Yeah, the answer to this question is violence, and the answer to the next question is violence, and violence, violence, violence. But with Common C's case, I, I would say that would the violence be taken out of the picture? Like, if, if the violence would not escalate in this movie, if you would remove all, all that you are being subjugated to as while watching the film, the film, I, I would almost say that the film would no longer work. Like, the director has made the statement that, that there are people who are unable to watch the film. And when researching the film, I, I did come, come across many statements that, that recommended that you most definitely should watch this film. But right on, but with, with that same sentiment, the people giving the recommendation also made the notion that they can't watch the film for the second time. Especially if if they have children of their own, if they have become parents, in mo- in in those cases, pretty much every recommender that I found for the film made the notion that he or she can no longer stomach to watch, watch the movie. But you should still check it out. And I kind of really understand that sentiment with, with come and see. And that sentiment very much, it, it stems from from the nature of the film, how uncompromising it is in in its way of showing you the wartime atrocities of the occupation of Belarus. And I I would say that that is maybe the film's strongest suit. Like like and that is behind the main emotional effect that the film has on you. Because this is kind of a taxating film to watch. You kind of kind of feel exhausted after you finish watching the movie, and that is very much, in my opinion, because the violence gets so horrific, because the violence gets so real, and because it because it becomes kind of a so non-stop. Yeah, this is the kind of film that you don't easily return to. This is uh, the kind of a film that, reportedly, for marking purposes or not was stated that some of its viewers in the theater just had to leave, were feeling nauseated and just couldn't stomach it to the end. Which is perfectly understandable. Three adjectives to describe this film. Mine would be harrowing, brutal and honest. Uh, This is unique. It's hopeless and honest, I found. It doesn't scream in any direction any kind of, you know, the propaganda, or the way that we talk about propaganda, usually no, no. I think it, it's a very balanced depiction. Well, it it does use some some of the elements that that are typically used in in propaganda messaging, like the, the, there is the depiction of of Nazis as inhumanly cruel. That of course mostly stems from from the historical account how the occupation went, but. Still, that's basically the only side you get from the Nazis. Even though it's very understandable that the, that this is the viewpoint you are being given, but it's still it's it's one-sidedly like inhumanely monstrous. Yeah, and you are, you are also kind of get the the denying of God element from the Nazis as they are burning the church, the house of God, so to say. And bo- both of those, both of those are elements that that usually are used in propaganda messaging. Like in in typical propaganda, almost in every form of propaganda, the main arguments usually are that 
the the opposition, the enemy is is he is not human. He's inhumanly cruel. He's sadistic, and and he's not like us. And also the fact that he denies the God that you have. Then again, any film has to pick some kind of a perspective to focus on. Understandably, here it's the the atrocities of the Nazis, but surely enough, there is plenty of atrocities from the Russian side as well. They just—it's just not the focus of this film. It's it's not, and I'm not faulting the film for for this. I, I I'm not saying that that the film does something wrong. Yep. But I I'm I'm merely I'm merely just making an observation that that well, once again, like the way the way the enemy is depicted is the same way as enemy is depicted in in basically in all propaganda since the dawn of propaganda itself essentially. Yeah, I perfectly read you. But did you look at your watch during this film? Uh, no, I did not. I yeah. I was tempted during the kind of the first hour of the film before before it really picked up. Yeah. But in in the end, this is not a film that actually has a dull moment in it. Yeah. If that makes any sense, on a second viewing, it might be slightly enjoyable because you get all the context and what's gonna gonna happen. Uh, and if you just look at this for the first time in the first hour, you get this all this wandering around in the forest, which may not open up to you as well in the context of everything, unless until you have seen it all. Then again, the, uh, at the same time, the emotional effect of the of the second half of the film, uh, from the swamp onwards, it has the strongest effect on the first viewing. If you can yeah. still somehow come to this movie code. And without any kind of expectations on what you are going to see. In that sense, even this podcast now is doing you a disservice. Because while, yeah, we are advocating that you you check out the film, but at the same time, we also are kind of giving you clues and we are are telling you something, what to expect from the movie. And this is, in my opinion, this is a film that would actually serve you better if you would not have any kind of expectations about what you are going to see and if you could just get a code experience with the movie. But Henrik, would you recommend this film? I would. I would most definitely recommend Come and See. It's it's not the only movie that has been made about the Second World War. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Like There's a fucking influx of those movies. But it is still it's it's pretty unique perspective. It it one well, like the unknown soldier. This one also kind of depicts one of those smaller conflicts of the Second World War. This is not your Normandy or or your or your Ber- Berlin. And this is this is once again this is shining a light on on the stories and and experiences that often are. Forgotten and disregarded when the Second World War is being talked about, but which still are not anyway less significant as 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 were the bigger conflicts of the war. At the same time, this also through through the sound usage and the camera work, this does kind of give you very unique perspective into the war and more specifically into what it could look and sound like as your mind is slowly falling apart and as you are becoming traumatized by war. This is this is a movie that 
in my opinion, in many ways, it, it tries to showcase its audiences what going through a war could sound like to the person who gets traumatized. Mm. Yeah, I would absolutely also give a flying recommendation for this film. This is what I really enjoy about watching a lot of international cinema, to give a kind of a more balanced view, if you will, of different kind of conflicts and situations and world views. So we travel around the world and we might watch some, you know, American film Schindler's List that's coming from another perspective or Full Metal Jacket or or this film. So I really get a kind of a, if that's appropriate to, I get a kick out of, you know, getting all these different perspectives that we get on this podcast. And in in that sense, may, maybe that that is that might be the biggest blessing of international cinema altogether. We are for the audiences that like listening people talk about films that that have gang rape and burning churches in Christmas time. <laughs> so you know, hey, Merry Christmas to all our listeners. Merry Merry Christmas, <laughs> Merry to everyone. Christmas, and Henrik. <laughs> You too, man. You too. <laughs> Good stuff from uh, Empire Magazine Field Assembly. And I had to laugh out loud when there was a quote. An impressionist masterpiece and possibly the worst date movie ever. <laughs> yep. I, 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 I can see what that said with that sentiment. The second worst date movie ever. If, if it's going to be your first first date movie. Your first date and you're going to check a film. You know, do yourselves, yourselves a favor and make it go on, girl. Because, oh my god, your relationship is going to show... show like, the rest of your relationship is going to show up in such a different light ever since after that. Yeah. Don't do this uh, common see for first date. Do it for the third date. You can start it with, with you know... With a, with Gone Girl, which showcases that that your significant other or the person you are infatuated with is actually a complete shit heel and most likely wants to murder you, then you can follow it up. I don't know, may, maybe with Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which which showcases your significant other that you have this international reach and you are you are interested about different cultures and people and 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 on your third. Third date movie you can you can check out come and see which showcases your significant other that that you are really fucked from the head and there's something with you and gang rapes so <laughs> that, that 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 that's kind of the dating recommendations from the from the flick lab oh it's a it's the make it or break it situation <laughs> it's a make it or break it do do you, you watch you know, underground <laughs> cinema or not <laughs> yeah. If if your significant other can actually actually take take all the three movies, you know, in that case, he or she is a keeper. Huh. Oh, I wanted to address one more thing here. Like, how would you put this film against Apocalypse Now or Full Metal Jacket? Do you get like the, the similar vibes, or which one do you feel is like more powerful? If you can compare any of this. It, it's hard to say, because I, I wouldn't put these kind of next to each other. Right. In in any way. The, the, these are... like <coughs> there, there are some similarities be, between the three films. Mostly that they all depict 
the deterioration of, of mind from diff different perspectives. In all those films, the characters more or less lose themselves. They become more or less insane as the movie goes onwards. Yeah, Apocalypse Now is less about the the violence that you, the on-screen violence and come and see is kind of a mixture of losing your mind while you see the violence so it's different beast it is it is there, there are there are some similarities in themes mostly precisely they're losing losing your mind becoming insane in in face of what what you are experiencing but that that's kind of kind of a like like outside of those few instances of shared ground, I wouldn't really say that these have that much in common, and that kind of kind of makes picking your favorites pretty hard. I would say almost impossible. If if I would have to, and this is in no way an utmost or or any kind of a final saying on the matter, but I I, I guess I would like. Put the apocalypse now first. Come and see second, and full metal jacket the third. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I enjoy all of them in different ways. So back to your spruce bubbles, dear listeners. I think that wraps up today's episode. I would say so. If nothing else, we have managed to ruin Christmas once again for our listeners. Once again. Let's get back to some more stuff next week as we are going to cover GoldenEye with Tom Franklin joining us once again in the studio. So Pierce Brosnan's first James Bond film, as you might know or not, we're going through the best and worst James Bond films throughout the year and the next until we reach the new one, No Time to Die in 2020 April. So we start the Brosnan era with GoldenEye and then go into Die Another Day, I'm afraid. Oh god. I'm afraid. And uh, I actually did watch already the first half of the film, and uh, I, I just, you know, I just had to stop it midway. I will finish it off later. But hey, once again, have a exhilarating Christmas, everyone, and <laughs> I will join your earphones next week with Henrik once again. Yeah, we'll be, we will be in your dreams until then. Armed the doll with a bomb. Armed the doll with a bomb.